Welcome to the Mom Worthy Podcast. This is Brittany. This is Sam. Grab your coffee or your wine and come hang out with us. Hi guys. Happy Monday. Today we spoke to a secret teller from Mm -hmm. a recent secret box we had on Secret Sunday. And she was brave enough to come on camera with us today. Yeah, so usually when we do secret episodes, we assume they just want to do it, you know, over the phone Mm -hmm. voice, but she wants to raise awareness, and this Mm -hmm. is kind of like what she does for her job, though, actually, is talks about this subject, which is um, sex trafficking and online grooming Mm -hmm. and... Rape culture. Yes, everything involved with that. And she was actually sex trafficked when she was, like, early 20s by her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, so you may have remembered that secret mm-hmm. in particular. It was How was it worded? I was Over, sex trafficked kind of... by my ex-boyfriend who is now dead, but he has an identical twin that's still living. Yes. That she's scared of a little bit. Yeah, so we, I kind of, for, I remembered that there was a brother situation, but we actually don't talk about that part. To the very end. end. Yeah, to the very end. So we do get to it. In case you're listening and you're like, what? When is the brother thing coming up? So that that is on there. You know what I struggle with sometimes with the interviews is like, I don't want to be too nosy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not an investigative journalist. Like I want to respect people's space, totally. their privacy, what they're comfortable with sharing. So I really try to let them share what mm-hmm. they're willing to share. But man, there were so many times that I wanted to get nosy in this one. Yeah. And I had to kind of fight myself back. True. You know? True. Especially since she was right in front of us. Yes. We could see her. I yeah. think it would be different if it was just over the phone. So if you guys feel that urge too, we felt it as well. And you can also reach out to us and ask more questions, which we do mention at the end too. If you have any other questions for us to ask her, um, let us know. We can reach out to her. Uh, maybe we should we do a trigger warning on this one? I think it's pretty obvious by how we've explained what this episode is about. But, but FYI, trigger warning for any type of abuse, yeah. anything in general. Anything in general. So... Here is our talk with the secret teller who was sex trafficked by her ex-boyfriend. What is your personality like? What are you like? If I were to meet you for the first time, how would you describe yourself? <laughs> um, probably fairly outgoing. It depends. I, you know, if I'm in a situation where there's a lot of people around me, Um, that for me is still currently sort of a trigger of anxiety. So I'll be very quiet and just kind of stay where I feel safe. But in a situation of comfort, um, you're going to know that I'm outgoing, uh, fairly politically charged, um, to put it, I guess, in this one way. Um, I certainly have been working in the social uh, services and social justice field for more than a decade now. So I have fairly strong opinions about, um, you know, uh, uh, rape culture and, and feminism and um, just how we can keep our kids safe and our, our both our little boys and little girls. I think that's a conversation that happens all together. Um, I like loud rap music and uh, Disney movies and <laughs> I, um, I live on a ranch, so yeah. It's, a little bit of everything, but I think I, I've heard the word opinionated to describe me before, so that's probably fairly true. But yeah, a compliment. Yeah. So, what were you? Were you the same in high school? Is that how you were like growing up in high school and your early twenties? Um, sort of. I was angry in high school. Um, 
I was, I was an angry kid. I had already endured um, a fair amount of abuse by the time I reached high school. Um, so that came out, I started doing drugs and I, you know, got into fights and uh, yeah, I wasn't, I, I was not very um, stable in high school. So pretty rough childhood and rough high school years. Did you have a lot of boyfriends in high school? Yeah, well, I had one serious boyfriend through the second half of high school. Um, but I kind of, you know, when you group date around that time, so you have like your group of friends and you date the one guy and then y'all you, you break up and then you end up sort of dating the other guy and your friends date, like it just- Around the circle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we did yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Make your way around until you're like, well, I've dated everyone here moving on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, definitely dated around a bit. So when did this relationship start with this relationship started after high school? Okay. Um, it was 2007. So I was actually 20, I was turning 21 in 2007. Where were uh, How did you meet? Yeah. So I, I mentioned, um, that I had endured a fair amount of abuse before high school. So I was sexually assaulted by my best friend's uncle for many years, um, starting around the age of, I think 12 or 13, um, which is sort of what led me down this path of doing drugs and being angry. Um, and sort of one thing led to another and I was doing more drugs and then I was dating guys who did drugs and then I was dating drug dealers. Um, and uh, Chris, the, the boyfriend that we're talking about, I met him, um, while I was already well entrenched in this world, I was doing a fair amount of meth. He was a meth dealer. Um, he, to my understanding had heard about me cause I dated one of his friends. Um, and I think I was some of something of a conquest to him. Cause he came, he, I was working at a tanning salon and he came into my tanning salon you know, very intent, knew who I was, wanted to meet me, wanted to hang out. And I really had no interest in him at first, um, but it doesn't take much to wear a drug addict down, um, like a little present of drugs. So we started dating early 2007. What was the relationship like at first in the beginning? Um, yeah, so because we were doing drugs, uh, we were awake like 24 hours a day, pretty much. So a lot of, you know, you don't have that like getting to know you period. You go from what feels like a new relationship to a five-year-old relationship within a week, because also you're talking at each other very rapidly. Um, so you get a lot of information. So at first, and I want to say at very first, so we're talking first couple of days or a week, um, it was fairly normal. I had, like I said, a chip on my shoulder. I had quite a bit of attitude and Chris was not used to people giving him attitude. So I think that actually um, enticed him to me a little bit because I, I, you know, would tell him to F off and, and whatever else. Um, and then I saw very quickly, I saw his violence, but I saw it directed at other people. Um, so I kind of was like, well, this is part of the game. Like if you're in a life where there's drugs and drug dealers, there's violence. It just mm -hmm. kind of goes hand in hand. 
Um, and I remember once he broke someone's car window and dragged them through the broken window because they had called him a goof. Um, and around that time, I remember going, okay, well, that seems a bit excessive. Um, and then, yeah, uh, to, and then I started feeling like maybe I, I don't have as much control in this situation as I thought. Um, and then there was an incident with his mother uh, and he got pretty verbally abusive towards his mother because he wanted her to make him cookies and she was already in like her robe and ready for bed and all that. And she didn't want to go out and get the ingredients. Um, so she promised to make them the next day and he like flew off the handle. Um, and to me, that was like, okay, this guy is nuts. <laughs> I have to go. This is, this is not safe anymore. Were you guys living together? No, he, we both lived, uh, in, uh, the same town and both lived with our parents technically though, in that sort of adult child way where you come and go as you please and just are using them for their roof mostly. Yeah. How long did it take you from first meeting him to get into that point where you saw that with his mom and you're like, okay, I have to, this is not good. I want to say like a week, a week and a half. So pretty quick. It was quick. About like a month, probably. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so after I saw, uh, you know, I, I started kind of putting things together. Like, I'm not in control of this situation. I don't feel good about this. Um, I decided I was going to break up with him. And I had it all planned out in my head. And I'm going to sit him down. You know, it's not you. It's me. It was definitely not. <laughs> um, but... So I sat him down and I told him, you know, we'd be better off as friends and we're going in different directions, whatever, all the cliches you can use. And I remember he was sort of nodding along and like, oh, okay, yep. And I was patting myself on the back figuratively, like, haha, you dated this guy and got out like unscathed because he was like a pretty bad dude. We knew he was a pretty bad dude. Um, and when I finished talking, he at that point was like rifling through a box and he handed me a piece of paper and he said, read it. And I was reading it and it was a photocopy of a, of a news article. And in the, it was a news article about a young woman who had um, been raped and thrown through a glass table and then had bleach poured all over her. And he said that that's what happened to the last girl who tried to break up with me. Oh my God, terrifying. And at that point, I don't remember what I responded, but it was something along the lines of like, okay, what do you want for dinner? Or probably not dinner because we were meth heads and we didn't eat things. But, um, you know, what, what do you want now? Like the, there was no more talk of breaking up. At this point, it was pretty clear who was in control and it wasn't me. So after that moment, there was no like subtle violence. It was obvious violence. And he knew he owned me. Everyone saw it. Nobody said anything. Um, his violence started kind of growing more blatant, more obvious, more violent. Um, and I started, actually for the first little while, I didn't try and get away. I had no idea what to do or how to do it. I, I knew I was um, addicted to drugs. Uh, I knew 
I had no, I wasn't about to tell my mom. I, like I wasn't, I kind of felt really trapped. Do you have any friends that you could talk to about it? Yeah, I had some really good friends. Um, and they all, I think, had seen like the path I was going down um, and had done their very best to try and pull me out. But at this point, he wasn't the first asshole boyfriend I dated. Um, and they, you know, at some point you can only help your friends so much until they want to be helped on their own. Yeah. So I certainly had friends in the wings being like, I'm here for you when you smarten up, but I'm not getting dragged into that world. It's insane. Mm -hmm. um, and I had some friends within that world, but um, meth heads are notoriously untrustworthy. So not the greatest of friends really. Um, when I did start trying to move towards getting out, I, I was aware that the, one of the first things I would have to do was to get clean or at least lessen my dependence, um, on the drugs. And Chris realized what I was doing and he started drugging me. So I'd find meth in my jam sandwiches, or I'd wake up having no idea what happened. And I'd realize he would have put G in my drink. Um, yeah. He was not, and he he wasn't keen on the idea that I wasn't um, as addictive as he was. I feel like I've heard that type of thing before with them too. So they maybe are notorious for doing that with their partners. Like they want to keep them drugged and to keep them. So there, there is definitely um, that's certainly something that happens. Oftentimes, it's not as common as you would think in a trafficking situation. Um, mostly because traffickers don't really want, like drugs are expensive, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you don't waste. Really yeah. want to waste drugs on someone who's supposed to be making you money because then they're using your money. So drugs can be used to control certainly, but, um, once that control's there, that psychological hold and trauma bond is there, it's, uh, not quite as common that the drugs are still used because they're not frankly as necessary as, uh, all the time sometimes they're different obviously when did the trafficking officially start um that's a really good question so what's interesting is uh i said i worked in the social services field for more than a decade so i have um and i knew for a long time that what had happened was an abusive relationship um so I was willing to wear the hat of domestic violence survivor. It was only in the last year that I realized what actually happened to me was trafficking. Um, and that's because I had no idea. I thought trafficking was like the movie Taken or, um, you know, a, a pimp with a series of a harem of women and hotel rooms and stuff. And what happened to me was quite different, um, which is why I share it because it tends to be sort of a more common narrative but the one we talk about the least um so chris and i we he like i said we did drugs um and uh we did the drugs he was supposed to sell which meant that we needed to supplement the income and so that started off with just stealing from people um and so he would steal small things at house parties i would be talking to people to distract them um, sometimes a bottle of booze at a bar or something I could distract the bartender. Pardon me. Um, and, uh, then, and I can't remember exactly when that flipped, but all of a sudden he needed, he wanted to steal bigger things and it was no longer, Hey, go distract them over there. It was get into that room and distract them really well. 
-hmm. And at that point, there was no saying no to Chris. Like I had once uh, at that point, I had worn a skirt that was too short and he'd sliced my thigh open with a knife. Um, like the violence was just constant and it would come out of nowhere. It was like this emotional whiplash and I couldn't, it was just always, there was always space for violence. You know, there was always a chance that he could lash out or something terrible would happen. So saying no wasn't an option. So that's sort of how that started. Um, and then I had mentioned previously, he drugged me and what had happened, I found out a little bit later was while I was drugged, he had taken pictures of me um, and he was selling those uh, online. I don't know to who I've never really investigated that so deeply because I don't think I want to know. It's like a blank in my mind and I think I'm more comfortable with it being a blank. I knew he had pictures of me on his phone. I'd sent him some, you know, thank goodness it was 2007 and cell phone photos were still fairly grainy. Um, so I have that going for me, but um, yeah, I, I remember asking him like, why do you have these pictures of me? I don't remember these being taken. And then at one point I had someone tell me they thought they saw a photo of me online and it was, yeah, someone doing something to me or something. And I just, I've, I know it happened. I choose not to, you know, look more into that because I can't track those photos down. I can't get them off the internet. I can't get them out of the hands of the people who may or may not have them. So I can't deal with it. Yeah. All I can hope is that it doesn't come back to like bite me at some point. I'm mm. probably not a candidate to ever run for any political office. Um, I imagine somebody would have a field day digging up dirt on me. Um, and that might be a really good way to piece together my twenties and figure out like what's happened. Cause somebody might be able to put that, put that all together, but I don't know that I need to. Um, but, uh, and a final sort of situation that I talk about with trafficking is we used to go, um, to a strip club all the time as you know, gangs, good gangsters do, I guess. And uh, one time while we were there, I guess Chris had made a deal with the strip club owner. I'm not entirely sure of what it was, whether he owed him money or what, but um, he sold me to the owner of the strip club. I don't know what the terms were. All I know is I uh, was standing and I felt someone pick me up and put me on stage. And um, Chris whispered in my ear, don't get down until you've made me some money. And like I said, not obeying was not really an option. Um, so I danced my little booty off and I came down and I gave him all the money that I made. And I was supposed to work at that strip club after that. And I honestly cannot remember how I got out of that. Um, that was, he, I think I, I, I have no idea. I don't know whether I had to, he had to, undo the deal he made with the strip club owner or I have no idea but I know they were calling me your shift starts tomorrow are you coming in and I kept making excuses and making excuses and then finally they stopped calling and I have no idea why there were no repercussions from Chris for that I, I don't understand that situation fully that's like my that sounds like a nightmare to me to be thrown on a stage and like just go just dance were you yeah like drugged at the time too were you high or drunk? I was high 
Um, I hesitate to use the word drugged because that implies that um, he drugged me. At that point, I was high on my own volition. Mm -hmm. um, but, which probably helped a little bit, frankly. How often did this happen? And what's the timeline of this situation once you were dragged into this trafficking? As best as you can remember, because I know it's been a bit of, bit of a time. Oh, this uh, might come as a shock. So we started dating in two, January 2007. Um, I got into a car accident, a pretty severe car accident in April 2007. Um, and it's pretty hard to do anything that I was doing with broken ribs and a severe concussion and a broken, like my face was all messed up and everything. Um, and that was sort of the door that the, the space that I needed because I was not useful to Chris at that time. Um, I wasn't able to go out and party and do drugs or anything like that. So that gave me the little bit of space. And I ended up um, moving away to school in July of 2007, um, kind of very quietly. I, I was running from Chris. Um, and so I was only working with him, I, however you want to uh, word that for about, I want to say three months, um, quite not quite possibly, the worst three months of my life. Um, but after that, um, I said I, I moved to school in July 2007. He figured out where I went to school and found me in March 2008. Um, I finally went to the police at that point, and then we were back and forth in court for quite a while until he was killed uh, in January want to say 2011 might be 2012 i'd have to look that up wow so the car accident was almost like a blessing in disguise at the time yeah i uh to this day i have no um proof of what happened in the car accident i know that chris had had my car the night before i know he called me when i finally talked to him about a day and a half after the accident um, when I was released from the hospital, he called me frantic, telling me he's been calling hospitals, looking for me, wanting to make sure I was okay, which was interesting because nobody knew I'd been in a car accident at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and he had, whether he was taking credit for something, he had absolutely nothing to do with, um, which is something he would do, uh, or he had something to do with my car accident. I don't know, but the brake line was damaged on my car. So, wow. You, you said you ended up going back and forth in court with him? Yeah. So did you get him arrested for, what, what, did, what was it initially that he had to go to court for? Right, so when he showed up uh, in March, it was on St. Patrick's Day, um, and I went to the police the next day. I didn't really wanna show up drunk um, and covered in green beer, vomit. Um, so I went the next day and I told them, um, you know, in a very unclear and rather frantic manner, you know, my ex-boyfriend's here, he's tried to kill me, um, I'm not safe, I need help. And I remember the very bored officer gave me a piece of paper and was like, write everything down, you know, and come back, to, come back to the desk, okay? So I did that. And then when they looked up his name and birth date, um, they, I remember the officer's eyes going wide and going, this guy, you're in danger. 
he's dangerous. Do you yeah. know you're in danger? And I'm like, yeah, I'm at the police station. I am, um, yes. <laughs> Please help me. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason I'm here. But did he have a lot um, of record, I'm assuming then? Yeah, so the reason I had gone to school um, where I went to school was because he had been in jail in that town um, and he had been a rat to my understanding or he had been in protective custody for some reason um, mm -hmm. and he couldn't go back to that town because there were people who were not very thrilled with his existence. Um, so when I remembered that nugget of information, that's part of that was the, the reason that led me to going, pardon me, to school in that town. Um, thinking he couldn't come there and I was safe. So that, pardon me, the police there definitely had a record of him. Um, I don't know what was on that record. I know it was long. Um, when they finally got my whole story, they ended up charging him, if I remember correctly, with forcible confinement, the assault causing bodily harm, breach of probation, and uttering death threats. Um, there is no mention of trafficking and in 2008 trafficking wasn't really a thing and that wasn't part of the story I told the police because that as far as I was concerned you know there wasn't a gun held to my head while I was in that bedroom there you know I'd walked in there as well under coercion but as willingly as I thought I was I was part of all of that I didn't realize that had that was something called trafficking or that it wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure at that point too, like being in it, you're not, you're in it, you know, you're not looking at it from an outsider, kind of evaluating everything that's going on. You're in this situation where, you know, you have this guy that might possibly kill you mm -hmm. if you disobey him, especially after you heard what happened to his last girlfriend. Yeah. And that's terrifying, you know, so that, that totally makes sense with the situation that you're in, that it's taken a lot of perspective. And now I feel like trafficking is really starting to be talked about, thank goodness. So I bet that has really helped that light bulb moment click in your head too and kind of realize what you went through. Has it been hard to have that realization? Yes. Um, you know, I said earlier, I've been willing to wear the hat of a uh, survivor of domestic violence. I talk about my child, uh, child abuse, so I can wear the hat of, you know, uh, abuse survivor, trafficking survivor elicits a different emotion in people, I think, um, especially as people are starting to understand what trafficking is. Because, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, they're things that happen to you. I think trafficking at some point is something you participated in, and not necessarily willingly, but there is that feeling of shame that comes with that of like, why didn't I just walk out the front door? Why did I walk into that room? Like, and that can be very similar with domestic violence. Um, but it was definitely hard to, to throw on another uh, label of victimization, definitely. You'd so right though, like you said, you know, I walked in there, but a lot of the trafficking too, I know, a lot of the research we've done this past year is um you know online and it's usually like teenage girls who willingly go out to their trafficker and they don't even realize what's going on because you know they were so naive and or maybe threatened whatever it is um that's usually how it happens they willingly leave and go and 
put themselves into that situation, but it's not their fault because they have no idea and they're young. Mm -hmm. That is a huge, huge thing because I think so many people, you're not, you're not seen as a real victim or a good victim unless you were handcuffed or unless you were kept in a cage or, you know, and there's all these really harmful images of children bound or in cages or something. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but with trafficking more often than not, there is a grooming process that happens online more often than not. Um, and in that grooming process, there's a psychological bond, a trauma bond um, that forms throughout that process. And when the trafficker, you know, gets to start trafficking, um, and so just because someone went like with to meet their trafficker willingly, that doesn't make them any less of a victim. Um, mm. And I think that's, you know, I, I teach uh, prevention classes, prevention education for trafficking. And that's one of the big things that, that we really try and focus on is um, obviously prevention. And part of that prevention is being able to recognize um, grooming behavior online when it happens. Is there anything else can you kind of expand on that? What else can us as moms do to protect our children? I think that's something we're all really curious about. Yes. Um, so the biggest thing I can say is start the conversation. Have the conversations with your kids because just if you don't want to have hard conversations with your kids, it doesn't mean they're not going to learn about hard topics. It means they're not going to learn about hard topics from you. And that is huge. So you... Also, you, you want to be able to be that foundational bit of information, which means you might need to go and do some research. Trafficking is something that people aren't super well-versed on. So make sure you're well-versed and have those conversations. My organization, I, I co-founded an organization in Wyoming and we focus on prevention education. Um, and we always talk about vulnerabilities and every single person has vulnerabilities. I don't care if you are the most put together, never seen a negative thing happen in your life. You know, you have vulnerabilities. And for kids, being an adolescent is a vulnerability in itself. Um, you know, kids who have been through the foster system, that's a vulnerability. Kids who are bullied, um, self-image, uh, social media, all of these things are vulnerabilities. So by talking to kids about how they're using social media, um, what they're posting. Cause even a simple post of like, felt cute, might delete later. You're right there showing someone that you need someone to tell you you're pretty, right? Like a young girl. So it's really easy for a trafficker to come through and be like, oh my God, you are the most stunningly beautiful little thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And then right there, they've started a conversation. They've engaged. Being aware of what you're putting online, those are all things I think we all know about. Don't, trying to teach kids, please don't tag that you're at the mall when you're at the mall. Tag once you leave, um, because it's just not safe for moms when you're posting pictures of your kids. Keep in mind, traffickers know how to search um, hashtags. So if you hashtag boy mom, and this particular trafficker is looking for photos of young boys, um, it's a really easy way to compile a bunch of photos of young boys and those photos on the internet, even if they're completely innocuous, you know, your little boy playing soccer or something, you can do horrible things with Photoshop um, and you can't get those pictures back. So just be really aware of what you're posting online. 
Um, if you post a picture of your kid in the bath and you put like a cute little emoji over their junk, um, that can be removed by people who are smarter than me and know how to use Photoshop. So keep that in mind. Um, and with your teens, unfortunately, all of the warning signs with teens is also typical teen behavior um, for the most part. So if you notice your teen is starting to become really secretive, which a lot of them do, um, really isolated or isolated from their friends, that's definitely something you wanna look at. Um, if they have a new friend in their life and like all of a sudden, and it's the only person who understands them, um, that's worth looking into because that is very typical of grooming behavior, that isolation piece and that I understand you better than your parents and your friends and all of that. Um, and a, if your teen comes home or adolescent comes home with new stuff that you're going, uh, you get paid $5 an hour for babysitting. There's no way you can afford these new Pumas or Nikes or whatever. Um, or hotel key cards is obviously a huge warning sign. There's no reason for a 14 year old to have a hotel key card unless it's from a family vacation. Um, so all of those things are things to look out for and please start the conversation. Talk to your kids about vulnerabilities. Talk to your kids about, hey, if a stranger on the internet were to tell you you're stunning, you know, and they have a modeling contract for you, what would you do, you know? And don't shoot down their ideas because if they go, well, you know, I meet up with them. Well, you don't want to be like, no, that's stupid because that's not really starting a conversation. That's ending a conversation. So you turn around and go, okay, interesting. So how would you go about doing that? What, what do you think would be safe? You know, and continue that conversation and have them come up with their own ideas and don't shut them down. Even if you think their idea is ridiculous because it's probably... A lot of the times they'll throw out ridiculous ideas just to get you to shut down the conversation. So the more you can get talking, the more you can get them talking, the more you can put it on the table and, and just have little bits of conversation. You know, if you see magazine ads that, you know, are problematic, which frankly, most of them are, you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. Why is there three guys standing over that girl in that ad? How does that make you feel? That makes me feel a little creeped out, you know, that just have those, you know, when you hear, where's that, that one Justin Bieber song and in the lyrics, it says, when you nod your head, yes, but you want to say no, talk about it. That's a great way to start a conversation about consent. Hey, did, did the Biebs just say something about saying yes and no? And what, what did he say? What do you think that means? You know, right there, you're just having these organic conversations while you're in a car or, hanging out or something like that. And it doesn't have to necessarily be this like sit down, we're about to have a sex talk, which is awkward for everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Advice. Yeah. I think it's a very conversational way to have those tough conversations with our children. And I like that it's very conversational and open-ended. You're not talking at your children. You're really trying to understand their thought process. You're not trying to just only give them your thought process. I think that's really great advice. I think though that takes a long time to build. You know, it's worth noting that that's probably not something you can jump into and it's super successful. Like you have to just like keep doing it, keep doing it, you know what I mean? And showing that consistency yeah. that after a while, they'll open up more and more and more to you. Exactly it, I think. The more you build this foundation, 
the less awkward those conversations will be. You know, the first time, God, I remember, uh, do you guys remember that Bloodhound Gang song? Um, Discovery Channel. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So oh, let's yeah. do it oh, like they yeah. do on the Discovery Channel. You know that song. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's one was at the peak of you know, uh, popularity while I was spending way too much time trapped in a car with my mother, uh, driving my brother to and from his swim practices. And every time it came on, I remember just like freezing and being like, she can't see me if I don't move. Um, cause I, I was so scared that she might talk to me about it, mm-hmm. but she never did. She sometimes changed the station or, but it was never a conversation. But every time it came on, it could have been a conversation, yeah. you know, and you can make it joking. You can make it serious. You can, if there's, they have friends, you know, you can make it a joke with their friends or something, but the more time, like you said, the more um, times you lay this bit of foundation and in different places, you know, in the car at home, while you're cooking or baking in the grocery store, whatever it is, you're showing your kid that anywhere and everywhere is an appropriate time to ask me about anything and everything, no matter what. So that moment that they get the courage to say something's not right, or mom, I need to tell you something. It might only happen, you know, on the way to swim swim practice or something. And you've shown them at this point that that's an okay time to talk. It opens the doors for them to be willing to come to you. You I know this happened 13 years ago and you've had some time to get where you were to here you are now, which is very eloquent woman who's able to calmly talk about this trauma that she's endured. What does that healing process look like for you? How is, you know, getting sober from meth, you know, healing from this abusive relationship? I know just recently you've accepted sex trafficking, but, you know, before you knew it was at least domestic abuse, really severe domestic abuse. So how has that healing been for you? And Uh, difficult. Um, And it's not a linear process. You don't, you know, one day decide, I'm going to heal myself and you until you're better, you kind of go this way, and then you go this way, and then you go this way. And you know, it's a graph that makes no sense. It's not it doesn't happen easily. There's an analogy I use a lot of the time when I talk and I say, everyone's heard of the analogy that you have to, you can't pour from from an empty cup, right? You have to fill your own cup. So using that analogy, if we think of our vulnerabilities as cracks in our cup, we have to be the one to fill those cracks or someone else can come along and fill them for you. And someone else is probably not gonna fill them in your best interest. They're gonna fill them in their own. And that could be something like a boss who knows that if every time they ask you to work late, you're going to say yes, even if you got to get home to your kids or, you know, your, your partner's starting to go, um, I haven't seen you in weeks, but every time your boss asks, asks, then you do it. So for me, I've started to learn what those cracks are, what my vulnerabilities are and what I can heal and what will always be there. Um, So for me, I've done a lot of therapy. I am still in therapy. I will probably be in therapy for the rest of my life. Um, And there's certain things, for example, I can't have an office where my back faces a door or I can't work or exist in a room consistently where my back is facing a door. I don't feel safe. I can't get work done, but that's a fairly easy thing to 
work out, turn my desk around, you know, ask to present at a different side of the room. Make sure if I come into a restaurant, I know where the door is and I can sit facing the door. I know how to ask for help. That's sort of one of the bigger things. My husband knows as much of my story as he can digest. Uh, he doesn't necessarily know all the details and I don't think he really wants to and I don't need him to, but he knows big, like I don't, I don't like rooms with lots of people I don't know. I mentioned that right at the beginning. So he knows to stick pretty close to me until I go, I give him like a look like, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little better now. Once I accepted that I was probably never going to not have the scars from this, both physical and emotional, that was one of the biggest turning points for me healing. And that those scars can be just part of my life story and they don't have to be my life story. Um, and I can navigate around them and sometimes you know, sometimes it, it's too much. And that day I, you know, well, I can't stand, but anymore I have a child, um, but I hug my kid or I tell my husband, I need, I need 10 minutes to go reset. I'm just, I'm really having a hard time right now. Um, in motherhood for me, one of the biggest things is I get a sensory overload really easily. Um, and that's a trauma response, um, a fairly typical trauma response. Um, and as any mom knows sensory overload is kind of the name of the game with motherhood. There's a lot of smells and sights and sounds and things happening all at once. So I struggled at first really badly um, with all of that and just needing to like put a pillow over my head because I couldn't handle all of the things happening. And now I can just say, hey, I just need five minutes. I just, I just need to go and take a deep breath and come back. Um, and all of that comes from recognizing your vulnerabilities. And that's not just adolescents who have vulnerabilities, we all do. Um, so in the work I've done, I've learned to recognize my vulnerabilities and in turn have learned and am continuing to learn to set healthy boundaries um, around what I need and, and what I can handle. I work in the human trafficking field now, the anti-human trafficking field, of course. Um, and so the fact that I'm reliving my history every single day means that, you know, I have to say, nope, I can't work on this project today. I need a day off. Or yes, I will come speak at your conference, but um, I can't speak with my back to a door. Or afterwards, I don't, because sometimes after you finish speaking, um, you know, people will come up and talk to you. And sometimes I'm okay with that with bigger groups, but if it's like 200 people, then please don't. Or please ask them to like write down questions and email me and I'd be happy to answer them. I just don't want everyone coming up to me at once. And that just takes a lot of navigating and understanding that your needs change day to day and be willing to, to kind of go with the flow as much as you can. I think that's really good advice for anybody that's healing for any, any type of trauma, mm -hmm. you know, not just yeah. this particular trauma. I think that's something that you've probably learned in the many years of therapy that you've been in that we can all take and, and benefit from ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of take into our own life as well. Yeah. And give yourself grace and don't forget to laugh. You know, that's my biggest thing. My presentation is, uh, that I usually give is called, I laugh in the face of trauma. And I do that for a reason because first of all, human trafficking and domestic violence and childhood sexual abuse, not funny topics. I get it. They're not funny. Mm -hmm. However, 
when you live in this world and you work in this world, if you can't find something to laugh at every once in a while, you are going to become very dark and twisty. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just have to laugh. Sometimes I just have to laugh at the ridiculousness that all of this crazy amount of things happened in three months. And now my life is like based on this three months that happened 13 years ago. Um, And, you know, I understand fighting for social justice and all of these things are serious topics and that's important. Everyone who does it, like kudos to you, but for the love of everything, go home and laugh or you will end up burnt out. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that you took something so dark in your life and you could have gone down a terrible rabbit hole with that, but instead you got yourself out, you got yourself in school, mm-hmm. you got yourself in therapy, you've built this amazing life for yourself, you're, you're married, you have your mother, you know, you have a career and a career that is helping other people. It's helping other people that have gone through something that you've gone through and you're really making a difference. And you know, I hate that bad things have, have to happen to us as people, but I'm a huge believer that in whatever happens, like it's what we make of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what we do moving forward. And I think you're a really good example of that. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, is this something that you do, like have a blog or do you promote on your social media or anything with these tips? And, or is this just solely for your job? Yeah, so I don't have a personal blog. My public speaking is actually starting to become that thing where I go, okay, I probably need to make a website and do all of these things for it. Um, Especially because I find people find me on Facebook after I speak and my Facebook, I try and reserve more for family and friends. Um, So my Instagram, I have my Instagram, but frankly, that's not really like I post small things about it. If you were to follow for tips and tricks, I would suggest um, my uprising, my foundation in Wyoming uh, or nonprofit in Wyoming. We post tips and tricks on our Facebook. We post tips and tricks on our Instagram um, and links to other people, you know, other people who are doing the same sort of thing. That's a US based, I'm in Canada now, but that's a US based organization. So I would definitely highlight that one. And that would just be um, uprising Y-O, uprising W-Y-O. I can send you guys the links to them if you guys want to post them, if anybody um, is interested in checking them out. And um, what like uprising is a Wyoming based organization. Um, So if there's any Wyoming listeners, please reach out because we can talk about doing in-person youth classes or parent caregiver classes. Outside of Wyoming, we obviously can't really do in-person things. Um, However, our Facebook has, we did a whole online safety month. If you scroll back, I think it was the month of May. So how to talk to your kids about online safety. Um, We try and do, you know, have tips and tricks for anything that's happening, you know, current in the world and try and make sure that parents have ideas on how to start conversations with their kids and and if you have questions, you can always reach out through and either of those um, avenues as well. And we'd be happy to, to direct you somewhere with answers, hopefully. I do have another question because I know the time's coming up, but I have to know before we go. I don't remember how you worded your original secret exactly, but I remember something about a twin brother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you maybe being scared of him. 
So, or scared of retribution. I was wondering or... if I was remembering that. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I always, this is again where I have to laugh because um, usually around the time that I finish sharing my story about Chris, I get to get a little chuckle in and say, well, he's gone now, but he does have an identical twin brother um, who is still alive and kicking to my knowledge. Um, I don't, I, I honestly don't know if I'm worried about retribution. Um, I don't know where his brother's at, whether he's back in jail or not. I don't know whether he would want to find, he want to find me. I knew his brother before I knew him. Um, we were sort of friends, I guess, ish. We knew of each other. Um, after his brother died, there was some blame uh, or tried to be directed blame for his death on me, which I had absolutely nothing to do with. Um, and so I really don't know. I'm just always curious now that I've made a career out of sharing this story. Um, there's always that thing in the back of my mind that's like, hmm, I wonder if this dude is gonna pop up at some point and try and tell me, try and say what I'm saying isn't true or try and, I don't know, get back at me for talking about his brother in a non-complimentary manner, though he, he knew his brother wasn't um, a super nice guy, so it wouldn't be a surprise to him. Um, but yeah, so I have no idea. I thankfully live on the other side of the country um, from where this all happened. So I do relish in that distance um, because it does make me feel safer. And every time I go back to that part of the country, my dad still lives over there. Um, it's, I'm, you know, instantly watching every face in every car to see if anyone is near me that I know I'm not comfortable in public places. People are like, oh, you want to go to the bar for a drink? No. Not really. Maybe in the next town over. Let's go there. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I don't know that I'll ever feel 100% safe knowing that there is an identical version of yeah. the man who tortured me wandering around somewhere. Yeah. That is a very odd and scary feeling. Yeah, it always feels yeah, like... But there's still this identical <laughs> version of him out there. It's crazy. Yeah. Like... What a crazy story, though, too. Like to be going through the court system and everything, and then for him to die, mm -hmm. and then like the brother to still be around. Like it's just like it's like a movie. Mm -hmm. What you've been through is like a really scary movie. I, you know, I have thought of that before. I am writing a memoir um, uh, with same sort of idea of like being able to laugh at things. And I, I'm, I have questioned in one of my chapters there who would play me in the movie, because I really think there's yeah. good material here. There really, really is. I'm, I'm glad that you're speaking out about this mm -hmm. because your story is one that resonates here in the United States. I'm, I'm sure in Canada too, but you know, particularly here, you know, a lot of us lose sight of what trafficking is. They think it's something in another country, it's far away, but no, it's here. It's it's our children, it's our sisters, it's our our brothers, yeah. you know, it's 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 people here around us and we need to be more aware of it. We need to be aware of the signs so we can help people get out of it. So thank mm -hmm. you for being open about talking about this. I know it can't be easy, but I just think that you're incredibly strong for doing what you're doing. Thank you. And I will say, um, 
you know, because so much of trafficking happens online now, and it's so easy for traffickers to like blanket message all the kids who have said they go to this high school, you know, and then whoever messages back, they can start talking to. Um, and with kids being online so much more these days because they are doing school online or they have less activity because things are shut down. Um, like I'm not getting political about COVID, whatever you, your stance is on that, you have to understand that your kid, if they are online more, then they are more likely um, to be, tar they have more chances of being targeted. And yeah. I heard from a police officer once, and this is not a, necessarily a factual statistic, but um, an opinionated one, that if your child has an online presence, there is a 100% chance they have been seen by a predator. Mm. Um, not necessarily approached, but seen. So getting these online safety tips um, and talking to your kids is always imperative. The amount of time kids are spending online now, it's that much more. We have seen um, an upswing in trafficking, in videos and grooming behavior, in all of this since COVID started. So if there was ever a time that you were wondering whether to start talking to your kids, now is that time, please. It's so bad. It's so awful. The things that have come from this. We've that's one thing that we have seen that statistic before as well about kids being home right now. I watched a documentary recently, and it's these police officers and undercover people who are trying to catch traffickers, and they made these fake online profiles of like a 13-year-old and then a nine-year-old, and like literally within seconds of those profiles going live, they were reached out to by traffickers. In seconds. They weren't even like inappropriate pictures or anything like that. So for me, it's like your kids, it's a really, really, really high probability that they're going to be approached by somebody. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have these conversations. It a hundred percent is. And my goal is never to terrify parents um, into wanting to like take all the electronics away from their kids and say, you're not allowed online until you're 25 or something. Um, which is ridiculous anyway, because your kids will find a way to get online, even if you take their electronics away. Um, my point is to empower parents to go, now I have this information, now I can share it. Now I can give my kids tools for their tool belt, so that way they know how to deal with things, and I know they have protective measures in place, and we've talked about this. It needs to be... People are so scared when we first started talking about it, um, the prevention education, like, I don't want you talking to my kids about human trafficking. Like, oh my God, no, they're innocent. I don't want, this is awful. We don't want to talk about it. Okay, well, it's happening whether you talk about it or not. So rather than make it this big, scary thing, we're like, look out for the white van uh, on the corner and don't go online and all of this. It's, hold on, big, scary things happen in our world all the time, but education is so powerful and to provide those tools to parents and have parents be able to provide those tools to their kids you guys are making our side more powerful than the side of the traffickers and that's our goal is to empower the parents and the kids so hopefully we can work to stop providing victims to these traffickers and stop creating more traffickers as well when they have more education and more knowledge about what's going on one of the positives from the internet is we get to talk to other parents and raise awareness Yes, exactly. Questions that we didn't answer today. Are we able to get back in touch with you with any pertinent questions? I just feel like this is such a important topic that I want to make sure we continue.
talking about this. It's something that we're really passionate about is, you know. Yeah, absolutely. At the beginning, like the rape culture, the porn industry, like those Mm -hmm. are other conversations that need to be had as well. Mm -hmm. I would be more than happy to answer questions or come talk to you guys again. If there is a whole bunch of questions, um, you guys can post my uh, personal Instagram handle because I do my Instagram. I keep public because though it's um, some personal stuff, I do post some um, things like that. I, that I I work with. Um, And then I will give the uprising stuff to you as well. And yeah, however people want to reach out and However, we can start the conversation, get this conversation started and, and share, you know, Hey, I, I did had this conversation with my teen and it worked cool. Now I can try that. You know, it's let's moms, let's share with each other and help each other. And, and, you know, let's, like I said, build the strength over here. That way we have it. I love it. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Best of your day. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it so much. No problem. Thanks, you guys. Bye.